Hi, this is Hannah Langdell and Whitney Lane, Duke Plastic Surgery residents with The Resident Review, a plastic surgery podcast. Today, we'll be discussing a topic that's important for all levels of training, ergonomics as it relates to surgery. We are joined today by two experts in this field, Dr. Scott Hollenbeck and Dr. Jeffrey Sisk. Dr. Hollenbeck completed residency in general surgery at New York Presbyterian Hospital, followed by his residency in plastic surgery here at Duke. Dr. Hollenbeck is now an associate professor of surgery at Duke, as well as the vice chair of research, uh, chair of breast reconstruction for our division. He is also the board uh, vice president of education for ASPS. And Dr. Sis completed his residency in general and plastic surgery at Harvard, followed by fellowship in microvascular surgery at MD Anderson Cancer Center. He recently joined us here at Duke from Ohio State, and we're very excited to have him. Thank you both for joining us today. Thank you. Happy to be here. So we'll get started just with a few background questions. Uh, could you both talk briefly about how you developed an interest in ergonomics? Sure. I'm, I'm happy to start. This is Scott. Uh, I guess uh, my interest came uh, from uh, my own uh, side of things when uh, after about eight years in practice, I began to develop some pain in my uh, back, uh, also some uh, bits of pins and needles uh, shooting down my left arm, uh, signs uh, of perhaps a nerve injury. And this was occurring uh, while I was operating, actually. And I, I found that this was actually happening most commonly doing microsurgery cases, particularly the, the micro part. Uh, I do use a microscope. And I was also doing a lot of things outside the OR at the time physically. And uh, I wondered if the two together kind of contributed to some problem. Of course, I worried about a ruptured disc or uh, other things that we hear about. And fortunately, through uh, some uh, maneuvers, stretching primarily, but some other things, modifying my workflow, was able to uh, have those symptoms go away. So um, I can talk about that in more detail, but that's how I got interested in the topic. I came to find out after talking to people that this is actually very common. And many, many surgeons have had uh, back and particularly neck fusion. And uh, I found that to be a little bit uh, surprising and also uh, somewhat alarming that 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 was such a frequent uh, occurrence, and I had never really heard much about that. So that's how I got interested in the topic, and have continued to explore different ways to improve my own ergonomics. Yeah, so I, I think you know my 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 story is probably not too dissimilar from Dr. Hollenbeck's. Um, I uh, might be a little bit more of a cautionary tale. I'd say my my interest in ergonomics is fairly recent. And it's due to a pretty intense personal experience. Um, you know, I am three years into practice now. Um, when I was about a year or a year and a half into practice, I started to have very similar symptoms um, that escalated really quite rapidly and, and, and got me quite scared. In the spring of 2020, I started having symptoms that were totally unremitting. You know, they started in the operating room, they started the morning after long cases and things like that. And, and, and they it got to a point where they just weren't stopping uh, and they were affecting my ability to, to function even on a day-to-day -day basis. I, I had a 
brand new son at that time. And I, I couldn't even lift him or hold him. So, you know, even on a personal level, it was, it was, uh, it was a debil- debilitating situation. It reached the point where I decided that I needed to do something about it. And I uh, was evaluated by a neurosurgeon, a spine surgeon, and uh, was actually found to have pretty severe um, compressive radiculopathy of a couple of cervical nerve roots that required surgery. So less than two years into practice, I found myself in the operating room for um, a, uh, what did not end up needing to be a fusion. I, I ended up getting a posterior foraminotomy. Um, so effectively the neurosurgeon uh, was able to just open up the, the space through which the nerve root was traveling. And thankfully I had pretty complete resolution of symptoms but throughout this whole process, it really got me thinking, as you can imagine, about what got me to that point, what the reasons for, for, for the, the rapid escalation of my symptoms were, what changes I could have made during that time to try to avoid what ended up happening. And actually, it got me thinking about my mindset and about the, um, the frame of mind that surgeons tend to be in in general, where we, you know, we tend to think of it now as an old school mentality, but I think it, it exists within each of us to some degree. This notion that you're not doing your job well, or you're not doing your job right, or to, um, any, to, to, to completion, unless you are punishing yourself in some sort of way. It's, you know, we, we as, as plastic surgeons tend to be we can be the first one in the hospital in the morning. We can be the last one home at night. And we have a pretty grueling physical job. And, um, and I think that my, uh, in fact, I have no doubt at this point that my mindset and my approach to my job and to, and to work, generally speaking, going all the way back to high school and college and medical school, um, contributed to some degree to, to the situation that I found myself in. And so, so that's, that's the personal story of why um, I got interested in ergonomics. And uh, as a result of my experience, it's now become an interest of mine, both in my own day-to-day clinical job, but also from a research perspective. Dr. Siska, I well, we're all very glad that you were able to um, get surgery and get better and come to Duke and help us train. Um, but from a, as you said, from a training standpoint, some of these tendencies start very, very early, um, even as early as medical school, where medical students are learning to, um, be in the operating room and, um, are really, and, or, you know, mimicking what we're doing as we're operating. Um, and I know Dr. Hollenbeck, you've published some research showing that, um, musculoskeletal pain in the operating room does affect medical students' decisions to pursue a surgical specialty. Uh, so what advice do you have even uh, to give as early as, um, you know, early medical students to improve their experience on surgical rotations and improve their ability to be surgeons in the long term? Thanks, Whitney, for, for mentioning that paper. I, I think it's an important paper because uh, it, it highlights the, uh, the importance of, of education and also decision-making when you think about your career and your future. And uh, the study, just to briefly summarize, was a survey sent out to three different medical schools, Duke, UNC, and East Carolina. And we got about 300 students to respond. And we asked them, you know, during your different rotations, which rotations were associated with the most physical discomfort? Not surprisingly, uh, surgery was by far the most. And then we asked them what 
particularly uh, what activities were associated with that. And, and usually it was standing in the OR or retracting. And then beyond that, it was which part of your body is feeling the most stress and strain. And the two most common areas cited were the lower back and the feet. And so uh, at the end of that survey, we, we told them, did you know that uh, up to 70% of practicing surgeons experience musculoskeletal pain and some portion of that even go on to have surgery and disability? And once you know that, does that influence your decision to pursue a surgical career? And actually it, it did in a significant way. There was a shift away from pursuing a surgical career once that information was known. Now, I never knew that uh, going into surgery and you didn't ask questions like that uh, <laughs> in terms of how, to, how does your career impact your lifestyle. But I think all of us agree that those are important questions. Uh, and those kind of things contribute to job satisfaction and, and burnout and all the other things we hear about. So if you accept the fact that this does occur and you accept the fact that, that people don't want to do, live that way or do a job that is associated with that kind of discomfort, is there, to, to Dr. Sis's uh, point, you know, is there something that can be done to modify either our work practices or the environment around us or the whole other concept of how we approach our job. And that's really what I've been interested in doing. And I can talk a little bit more about that. Uh, but this impacts, you know, one of the interesting things I found when doing my research was that uh, the most common uh, type of injury to occur in, in plastic surgery typically, especially microsurgery, is, is going to be in the neck region. A lot of what I talked about, what Dr. Sis talked about. But the shocking thing about it was that the most common age that this happens tends to be early career and early to mid career. So 40s. Uh, this is not typically a, a problem associated with being 65, you know, 70. Oh, that person operated too long. They, they're going to get a neck injury. It's not that. It's actually when we're starting out. And part of that is because, and I'm sure Jeff can attest to this, it's when we are the busiest we ever will be operating on the most difficult cases. We want to establish ourselves in our career as the go-to person, or at least as somebody that can, can do our job well and can be a useful uh, contributor to the team. And so we take on a lot of difficult uh, cases and, and that's exactly what, what happened to me. And that's, uh, I think, what happens to a lot of people. So again, to recap, this, this is something that affects our, our younger group as well, uh, not just our, our early, uh, or not just our early career, mid-career, and, and especially not our, our late career surgeons. Yeah. Oh, it's, uh, it's definitely a good warning and something that I never really considered as a medical student either um, when going into surgery. So, so thanks for summarizing. And Dr. Hall, like you've alluded to it um, a couple of times of ways that you've changed your career and your practices. Uh, do you mind elaborating in Dr. Sisk as well of uh, changes you've made and to improve kind of the pain that you've had early on? Yeah, absolutely. And this is the real meat of the discussion here. You know, we all know this exists, but at the end of the day, is there anything that can be done? And, and I personally have found there are some things that can be done and others have found this uh, to be the case as well and have published on this. Uh, probably the, the single most important thing that has helped me out has been stretching. Uh, I used to never stretch before surgery, and I never really stretched after surgery unless I was going to go do something physical afterwards. 
And I thought to myself one day, I'm like, you know, I would never go on a run. I would never go play tennis or pickleball or something without at least uh, doing some stretching. That was good. I didn't know you're a pickleball player. Yeah, I'm just sort of getting into that. So nonetheless, uh, you know, you would never go play like basketball, pick up basketball game, or you would hurt yourself. And and so I started incorporating that kind of approach to surgery where where I try to actually do a formal stretch before. And I usually do that during, you know, sort of the prep time during the intubation and, and other things while, while we're getting the patient ready. And so I can still be there. I can still be in the room, but I can actually do stretches and, and people have gotten used to that. But at the beginning, it's, it's a little bit awkward. I also began to incorporate uh, breaks within surgery. When I was training, it used to be considered uh, a sign of weakness is a term that was used if you took a break. And that kind of approach, that kind of mentality is, is flawed, in my opinion, because I found that once I started taking breaks, that my surgical treatment actually got better. The, the way I performed surgery became better. And I also physically felt better. So uh, even if you can't really take a break uh, formally for five or 10 minutes, you can always step back from the table and stretch your back out and stretch your uh, shoulders out. And then I also have done a lot with postural muscle training. Uh, I used to go to the gym and always want to work out just the muscles on the front part of my body uh, so I could see them and, and feel good about myself. But I found that actually working on the muscles in the back part of your body helps you sort of bring your uh, posture, you know, to improve that and to strengthen those muscles. And, and there's many exercises you can find online to train postural muscles. And that's been very important. Also, you know, based on that medical student study, I began to think more about footwear. Uh, I'm a big proponent of uh, ergonomic footwear and specifically compression stockings, I think are very helpful or even just socks. Uh, I, I know a lot of our residents like to use them uh, and, and you all could attest to that as well. I also change footwear every day. I don't ever wear the same pair of shoes back to back. Uh, there's many great types of shoes, but even the best most comfortable pair of shoes worn several days in a row, you'll begin to get the same pressure points in, in your feet. So I change it up every day. I have like seven different pairs of OR shoes uh, for each day of the week, but I don't usually operate on Sundays and Saturdays. Uh, that's part of how I've improved. And then finally, I, I've tried to shift my schedule around a lot more. I used to do, you know, multiple difficult cases back to back to back. And instead, I've tried to uh, build in some different types of cases, uh, maybe some ambulatory cases. And, and then I've tried to actually cut back a little bit uh, because, uh, you know, doing as many cases as humanly possible is great. And you, you deliver a lot of care for patients in need. But at the end of the day, if you hurt yourself, you're actually going to not be able to deliver care to as many patients over your entire career. So those have been my my things. There's lots of other techniques and, and technology and other things. But to me, it's been very simple. Stretching, good footwear, and varying my caseload. Those are great tips. I uh, hadn't even thought about the, the shoe aspect. You know, Whitney's a runner, and you probably do that for running and switching shoes. They would never wear the same shoe over and over again. But I never really actually thought about that for operating. I have like three different pairs of running shoes that I change between in marathon training and have one pair of shoes I wear in the operating room. And I'm arguably in those shoes far more frequently yeah. than my running shoes. Dr. Sisk, any other uh, tips or things you've changed? Yeah. Yeah. I would, uh, first of all, thank 
Thank you, Dr. Hollenbeck. I mean, I would echo every everything that you just said, and, and certainly those are all things that that make a lot of sense. And the ones that I haven't already incorporated, I will. You know, I think we've mentioned a couple of times now that um, the way that you approach sports and athletics, you can you can take some of the aspects of the way that we approach those sorts of leisure activities or or, or you know pastimes and work them into the way that you approach surgery too. Um, and I think even as far as um, the mentality is concerned surrounding your pastimes, you would, you would never push past the point of pain when you're going for a jog, right? To me, that, that's a significant learning point. Um, and, and I think that actually paying attention to your body and, you know, being aware enough to, to know when you're having pain and actually taking a step back in those moments is really critical. Um, we all talk about how important the setup is for our cases and, uh, you know, taking two, three, five, 10 minutes, whatever it takes to get the microscope set up the way you need it to be um, before you, you know, dig in for 30 or 40 or 60 minutes under the scope um, is really, really important. And I think that when I was toward the end of my training, you know, as a resident, you always feel um, that you need to defer to the attending surgeon and the attending may set the scope up for what's most comfortable for them. And, and, and in some cases, certainly my attendings wouldn't ask if I was comfortable. Um, and then next thing you know, you've been working in a, in a really awkward, uncomfortable position for 80 or 90 minutes and, and you feel it the next day and the day after. Um, so, so, you know, I think speaking up, and, um, and saying something, if, if the setup is not going to be conducive to a comfortable position, um, speaking up is really, really critical to making sure that you're taking good care of your body. Another thing that's maybe obvious to everybody is, you know, we put ourselves in positions as plastic surgeons and as microsurgeons, by definition, put a lot of downward torque on our lower cervical spine. Um, and it's, that's especially true when you add on the additional weight of a headlight or uh, heavy loops. So, you know, particularly after I started having symptoms a couple of years ago, I, I now only use a headlight when it's absolutely necessary for me to, you know, I think um, when you walk into an operating room and you got three people all with their headlights trained on exactly the same subject, it's probably not necessary. So, uh, so, so just being aware of exactly how much weight, how much weight worth of equipment you're putting on your head uh, is another, it's another thing that has the potential to, to benefit us in the long term. Yeah. And then I think, you know, really at the core of it is, is um, making sure that, that you're, that you're tuned in to everything that's going on with your body and, and, uh, and making adjustments on the fly if necessary to make sure that, that things end up in an ergonomically safe and comfortable position for you. Jeff, and if I could, uh, you know, ask you a question because you kind of alluded to it. Uh, and this is probably one of the more controversial topics in this area, especially as it pertains to microsurgery. The concept of uh, loop microsurgery versus microscope microsurgery. And I'll just add my two cents. If you do a cursory review uh, of the literature, you will see things that imply a little bit like what you were saying, that, that wearing loops is perhaps worse. And there are many, many studies uh, that, that look at the force on the, the C-spine, you know, with wearing uh, headlights and loops and extra weight. And, and so it, it makes sense, but 
uh, as I said at the very beginning, my, my troubles were actually occurring as I was leaning in to look into the microscope. And then on top of that, to use the microscope, you have to hold yourself extremely still. Not only your hands, but your entire body or your field of vision. And so I've always thought of microsurgery not not like a sporting event like we were talking about earlier, but almost more like like a ballet in the sense that that you watch people that that do you know that type of dance and it's very controlled, very sort of deliberate kind of physical uh, you know motion and and control their body. And so the, the tensing up part has always been what's been difficult for me and holding my, my position in the exact same position. And, and one of the things I found helpful was to buy or, or ask the operating room to, to purchase these extending uh, eyepieces for the microscope. So they actually will telescope out away so I don't have to lean in as much. And we, and we have two of them so that the assistant also doesn't have to lean in as much. That's been another thing that's been very helpful. But uh, I'll, I'll kick it back to you. What do you think, loops or microscope? Wh which is better, or is it just independent and dependent on the individual's personal uh, perspective? Yeah, I mean, I think I think it really is dependent on the individual, and I think that I mean, just as you said, um, even though you know it doesn't make sense to me that if you're wearing loops perched over a perforator dissection for for a couple of hours. Um, and, and you've got your, your, you know, your lower, the lower portion of your cer cervical spine bent to 45 degrees that that's going to cause, that's going to lead to exactly the kinds of problems that you and I have both alluded to. But at the same time, in the same breath, you said that your problems didn't occur with the loops. They occurred with leaning into the scope. Now, you know, they're, they're this, both have been described as significant issues and there are efforts on the part of loops manufacturers now to, to make wearing loops uh, easier and more tolerable. You can purchase prismatic loops that allow you to stay, to keep your neck upright while your, your eyes are trained downward. So, you know, my personal perspective on it is that I think it was a combination of the ergonomic, the negative, ergo, the, the, the bad ergonomic forces that I was applying to my neck, uh, both under the scope and uh, with loops. I can't tell you for certain for certain that that I was having more pain or more symptoms during one during the perforator dissection as opposed to, you know, the, the actual anastomosis uh, underneath the scope. I think it's it's a combination of all those things. There there are all sorts. You know, I, my guess is that if you were to train a video camera on a microsurgeon throughout all the various components of a procedure, whether it's um, the perforator dissection or, or or you know the time spent under the microscope you're going to find that individual in some pretty compromising positions from a cervical spine perspective at various points in the operation. So I think, you know, rather than engaging in a debate about loops versus microscope, I think, you know, keeping the focus on each individual really being aware of, um, of what damage he or she might be doing to his or her body throughout the course of a procedure is really the critical element to making sure that everybody stays healthy. Dr. Siska, as you just said, um, you know, if we trained, a if we had a video camera videoing us during surgery, I'm pretty sure we'd see all of us in very awkward positions. Um, it would probably make us all far more aware of how we are standing and positioning ourselves in the operating room. 
Um, what do you think are some ways that we can make trainees and young attendings aware of how they are even standing in the operating room? Because oftentimes it's not something you notice while you're doing it. It's something that you notice right after the cases. You're like, oh, my neck kind of hurts. Uh, I must've been in a weird position, but you're so focused on what you're doing at the time. It didn't, doesn't really occur to you um, that you're not standing in, in a very ergonomic way. Yeah. Well, I think first, making sure that this becomes a part of, of a larger part of our resident curriculum is really important because I think that if you do have a lecture about this sort of thing, or if we get our, our residents and our trainees and our students to be a little bit more aware of some of these issues, they may prepare for the operating room in such a way that they're actually more mindful of, of the sorts of things that could cause problems. But then, you know, all of us know that when you get in there as a resident or a trainee or even a fellow or even a young attending, um, you know, when you're getting ready for the case, you've got other things on your mind, you're distracted, you're focused on the task at hand. And sometimes it's really easy for those things to, to slip by the wayside. And for that reason, I think it really, it really does fall on the shoulders of the more experienced surgeons, the, the attendings, the microsurgeons who are supervising the trainees um, to speak up and to make sure that, that residents are paying attention to their ergonomics and to their posture. I'll uh, add to that if I could, and at the same time, put a plug in for the Duke Department of Surgery Ergonomics Program, which is uh, run by Marissa Pintinko and many others in the Duke uh, Human Resources and Ergonomics uh, Departments. Uh, and Marissa will actually come to the OR and take pictures of you if you, you know, seek a consultation with her. And I, I did that actually in the middle of my symptoms or at the beginning, first time I had them. And I was shocked to see the pictures. I, I sort of had a vision of myself, uh, but clearly my vision of myself was different than what was actually happening. So uh, it's kind of like when you're training for sports, very helpful to watch a video yourself, same kind of thing. I saw a lot of bad positioning and uh, also my assistants. I saw a lot of instances where my assistants were in bad positions and I, I was oblivious to it. So now uh, I have some better awareness based on that consultation, those pictures taken during surgery. I would also uh, comment on some work done out of the Mayo Clinic from Susan Halbeck, and uh, she has a, a wonderful program on ergonomics and surgery, which includes uh, many videos uh, that you can use for stretching. Uh, but I believe that same group, and, and it's possible it maybe multiple groups doing this, have actually tracked uh, body position during uh, deep flap procedures and maybe a couple other common procedures and a little bit to what Dr. Sisk was talking about, where there are certain portions of the procedure that are associated with certain types of strain, and, and those can actually be tracked out. And so at the end of the day, I, I always think, you know, we, we may know about all this, but I don't know how to make the surgery any easier. And, and people have looked into using the robotic devices and, and laparoscopic, endoscopic those also have many, many issues with ergonomics as well. And the surgery just at the end of the day is very hard. But I think if you know times at which you're going to be under extreme stress or you know times that are prone for bad body position, I think it does help you uh, because you will not perhaps freeze as much in those positions. You'll say, you know, let me do five minutes in this crazy, awkward position and then stop and then stretch my back out, do a micro break, and then go back in and do the next five minutes. And I found that kind of thing to be very helpful. Yeah, that's great. I uh, did not even know that program existed. 
So thanks for sharing. There's a great picture of uh, Dr. Hollenbeck and I it was, I don't know if I was an intern or maybe it was last year. Uh, it was one of the first times I was under the microscope and someone took a picture and I'm like looking straight up because I'm, I'm five, two, and I did not even notice it until afterwards. Someone said, Oh, look, I got a picture of you. And I look like I am probably in the worst position. Um, but it, you're right. It's something that I didn't even think about. Yeah. That's a great point that you bring up, Hannah. And you have Dr. Sisk and I talking here and we've had our own experience, but everybody has a different experience. And one thing you're alluding to is that there's different body types that, that are doing this. And that's been found to be uh, also associated with some particular ergonomic issues. Uh, for example, smaller hand individuals, and this tends to be more female surgeons. Uh, some of the instruments are not designed for smaller hands. That's especially true in laparoscopic surgery and even some other types of surgery. Uh, there's things like height differences, which uh, again, tend uh, shorter height tend to be more common in female surgeons. And exactly what you were alluding to right there, there can be some issues with uh, visualization and having to stand frozen on a, a small platform uh, things like that that are that are very unique. So there's a lot of researchers around, and I would encourage anybody listening to this that's interested in, you know, gender specific uh, ergonomic issues to look into that because they they do exist. Uh, there are people that are that are looking into that and working on it. Uh, from my review of the literature, it tends to be a little bit more common that uh, female surgeons will have more issues with the upper extremities. Uh, primarily related to hand issues. And, and many people believe that's related to the instrument sizing. Definitely can, uh, can relate to that. Um, to close, I know that you all had talked about a little bit about culture change and about um, how we bring awareness of ergonomic issues um, to the forefront. Um, also talked a lot about how breaks are very important um, to how you are able to continue to operate. Even changes to your schedule are important to um, allowing you to continue to operate well. How do we champion um, some of this culture change within a surgery um, culture, which, as we all said, is still somewhat old school, still uh, very much that we need to work until we can't work anymore? Well, I think that, you know, the, the culture right now is really primed for people like you guys and all the trainees um, that are currently going through plastic, plastic surgery residency programs to, to take the reins and, and to do something about it. I mean, we've seen an incredible, very positive change in culture just over in the short period of time since I graduated from my training programs related to work-life balance and related to uh, approaches that allow us to avoid burnout and so I think the transition to using the same sorts of approaches, but, but applying them to physical stresses as opposed to mental and emotional stresses, is, it, the change is, is, is ready to happen in so many different ways. So I, I, would just, I would just advise you and everybody else in your position to, to take your concerns to the pulpit, take your concerns to your program directors, take your concerns to, to your multidisciplinary conferences, and, and talk about them. There's, there, I am almost certain that there's not going to be an arena where that sort of change is not going to be welcomed and then in turn championed by your seniors and your leaders and your attendings. I, I think it's, it's, it's got to happen. You know, we, we are surgeons who pride ourselves in our longevity, not only uh, in the OR for a given case, but 
even as it pertains to the entirety of our careers. And if we're really going to continue to, to uh, have that be a point of pride for us, then we have to be aware of the sorts of things that are potentially career shortening. And so, so taking these concerns and, and really disseminating them throughout the educational environment and, um, and talking about them freely and openly is, is really critical. Yeah, and I'll add, you know, knowledge is power. So, you know, each survey that gets done uh, has data associated with it. And, and we see alarming numbers of surgeons that have had uh, actual, you know, job impairment, inability to, to operate and time off work and ongoing pain and, and those sorts of things. So that alone is, is a good way to begin an argument with an understanding of, of what's out there in terms of data. Uh, and that that helps bring some validity to it. So uh, when I usually try to advocate for things like this, I, I often start with, you know, did you know 30% of surgeons have had, you know, surgery for their back or neck or, or something like that uh, to, to sort of bring it home? And people are often quite surprised by that. Uh, and then uh, on top of that, you know, changing culture is obviously not, not easy, but uh, it, it's helpful to uh, have... Uh, people that 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 are bought into changing culture, and that comes with the senior leadership. So, uh, just back to the Duke ergonomics program, you know, the, it started by the the residents. The general surgery residents went to the chair of surgery, uh, Alan Kirk, and and said, "Hey, we'd like to start this ergonomics program." And to his credit, he he agreed to to do that and and put some resources to it and and allow that to to go forward. But uh, it, it needs, you know, buy-in from the leadership and often the argument for maintaining the workforce and maintaining a ha happy and healthy workforce is often the, uh, the, the issue. But you, you sometimes run into a barrier when one of your conclusions is that uh, I need to do less surgery in order to not hurt myself. And, and that's a barrier for many reasons. Number one, it's a, a ego barrier because you may say, I want to be the busiest. I want to be the best. I want to do the most. I want to be the go-to person. I want this and that. Some of this has to come down to some self-awareness and, and realization that, you know, that those kind of things are maybe not important to me. And maybe they're not as important as, as I might have thought they were. And so that, that's number one. And then from an institutional standpoint, there, there is currently, you know, no uh, incentive really to, to necessarily, you know, take care of yourself and do less. But I think it's actually, it's gaining uh, momentum in that, in that way. And that's kind of a complicated story that has to do with lots of different factors. But uh, one thing that, that happens is when there's not many surgeons around to do the number of cases that need to be done, you as the doctor find yourself telling patients, you cannot get any treatment at this time because I am not available. I'm not operating seven days a week. Uh, therefore, I'm only operating six days a week. Therefore, you, the seventh person, cannot have surgery. And that's a tough conversation to have. Now imagine if you cut back to only one flap a week or one surgery day a week. Well, it's going to be financially impactful to the institution. And it's going to be difficult for you as a, as a surgeon to turn patients away who otherwise you'd be able to treat. So I think from a systematic perspective, we need to have more surgeons available to do you know, these complex, difficult cases. 
And that often I have found is the primary number one problem associated with uh, people injuring themselves, uh, working over, over the limits uh, because they feel the pressure from the patients and the other referring doctors to to operate, you know, continuously, even when they know, maybe they even know that they're hurting themselves, uh, but they just don't want to let patients down and they don't want to let the other doctors down. So complex problem, but uh, I think, uh, you know, the newer generation, you all coming along will, will probably be more in tune with, with those concepts. Well, Dr. Hallbeck, Dr. Sis, that was a lot of really helpful information. I think it's valuable for our medical student listeners, residents, faculty. Like you said, this is a problem that starts out early um, and can clearly get very severe if, you know, we're not doing things to take care of ourselves. So thank you both so much. Um, and we really enjoyed having you. Great. Thank you very much. And we'll see you on the pickleball court. Looking forward to it. As a plastic surgeon with a unique vision for each patient, the more options you have at your fingertips, the better. Natrell is one of the portfolios available to you. To learn more, visit natrellsurgeon.com.